you're new with us, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. This is sermon number three. Ecclesiastes speaks about the harsh realities of life under the sun, about the frustrations and futility of life under the sun. Uh, last Sunday, we uh, finished chapter one and, and went through chapter two, and we discussed uh, three reasons for despair, namely that wisdom doesn't satisfy, that pleasure doesn't satisfy, and thirdly, that death is inevitable. And we finished in verses uh, 24 to 26, talking about the one source of meaning and joy, namely knowing the God of grace and justice. And it wasn't long after uh, that sermon that the news came out of that tragic helicopter crash last Sunday, right, uh, which killed nine people and uh, has been all through the news, uh, of course, because one of the passengers was known uh, across the world, Kobe Bryant. And I had said in the sermon last week that sometimes we watch the news and we weep. And it's true, isn't it? Life really is a vapor. Sorrow really is real. Death is real. And what you do in this life matters. We're seeing these things in the book of Ecclesiastes, aren't we? It's a book that talks to us, it forces us actually to think about life and death about time and eternity. And so I want to pray today that the Lord would give us a heart of wisdom, that we may learn from it and walk in God's ways. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of divine wisdom. We pray that we would order our lives properly as we consider your word today. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Bring your truth to bear in our souls today. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to delight in you, to fear you, to enjoy you and glorify you all of our days as we study your word together in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So the, the general theme of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes uh, has to do with the sovereignty of God. Uh, our sovereign God rules over time. Time is the dominant theme here. And the author is... Uh, trying to get us to think about time in relationship to God. Uh, when you consider time in, in view of God, it, it should lead you to do the two things we've been saying are uh, sort of these, these themes that go back and forth in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It should, consider, it should cause us to fear God and to enjoy God as we consider time in view of God. Now, growing up, I used to love the Chicago Bulls. And uh, some of you will remember this. The, the team would all huddle up before the game, and somebody would say, what time is it? And everybody would respond, game time. And that was pretty weak, by the way, but uh, <laughs> it's the 9 o'clock, right? We'll get there maybe by the end of the service. Uh, what time is it? Game time. There we go. Now we're ready, baby. Now we're ready. Let's get these goals down and play some. Um, and, and every elementary kid and every elementary team, you know, was, was, they were trying to copy the Chicago Bulls. Uh, what time is it? And that's, that's kind of a question here in Ecclesiastes. Or perhaps we could uh, frame it a little uh, better, and that is, whose time is it? Who rules over time? Who's in charge of time? Now, there's a, there's a poem, as you all know, from the first eight verses about time. And the author says nothing about God. It's just statements about the reality of life, the realities of life, the things that, uh, that go on in our lives. But then in verses 9 to the end of the chapter, he begins to then draw out principles to apply on this subject of time with many refer references to God. 
So we look at this poem on time and then we look at principles uh, on time in view of God. It's a, it's, a, it's a comforting text in one sense because God rules over time, because God makes everything beautiful in his time, because this God is good and even tells us to enjoy our lives. But it's also a challenging text because uh, we're reminded in the text of God's justice, that this sovereign God is also the judge and what we do is, what we do matters. It's a, it's a reassuring text and a sobering text. And so we're gonna have a look at it now uh, in these, these two broad uh, sections. First of all, this poem on time, the first eight verses. Now baby boomers are very tempted, I'm sure, to sing this song, right? All you have to do is add the, the words, turn, 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 and, and you have a hit, right? And some of you had no idea what that song is because you're too young, you bunch of millennials. You, you can YouTube it later, okay? Um, but long before uh, the birds sang this song, Cole Hellett, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, wrote it. Uh, interestingly, uh, the guy Pete Seeger, who wrote the song, originally released it as to everything there is a season and gave part of the royalties to Israel. Uh, it's a poem about the experiences of life. Some of these experiences are positive, and some of them are negative. Now, the great theologian Hootie and the Blowfish uh, used to sing, time while you punish me. Some of you may know that one. A for effort. And what, why does time punish us? We, we feel that frustration, don't we? How many of you perhaps have said in recent days, there, there are not enough hours in the day we, we feel the, the, the tyranny of time, or we say things like, where did the time go? And that's, that's, that's the idea here. There are 14 pairs of opposites in this poem. And it's, it's sort of the, uh, the, the, the extremes on both ends, and it is meant to encapsulate everything that happens in between uh, these, these ends. So we see for everything there is a season, and for every, there is in a time for every matter under heaven. So he's trying to, to uh, help us to, to reflect on all of life, every matter, everything that goes on. And he begins with a time to be born. It's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. So being born and planting are, are two ways of giving life. There's a time to be born. For me, it was 43 years ago yesterday in Trenton, Michigan, downriver in Detroit, where the hospital is now closed. <laughs> they did not want to do that anymore after I was born. But uh, my little buddy Zeke in the church here also had a birthday yesterday, and perhaps some of you had birthdays uh, recently this weekend. One thing we all have in common in the room is that we had a birthday. We were all born. There was a time for us to be born. And there's a time for us to die. Now, we don't know when that day will be. Ecclesiastes 9.12 says, For man does not know his time. But there is a time. Just like there was a time to be born, there is a time to die. He says in verse 3, There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Killing and breaking cannot be avoided in this life. Healing and building are preferable. Uh, he doesn't get into, uh, you know, uh, issues like what constitutes uh, just war and so on, but he's just speaking of the facts of life. 
time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. Verse 4, life also contains sorrow and joy, doesn't it? Right? There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. It's good and right to mourn and to weep. Our Savior wept, didn't he? And there's a time to laugh. We really should. We should enjoy the blessings that God gives us. Some of you may not be down with this, but there's a time to dance. <laughs> there is a time to dance. For me, it's when I'm grilling out usually. My kids wish I would stop. But there is, there's, there's sorrowful times in life and there are joyful times in life. And then he says in verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. Now, the meaning of this is debated, but it seems to be uh, referenced of casting away stones, uh, uh, of, of casting these stones on a, on a field after uh, uh, an enemy would take you in war. You can see an example of that in uh, 2 Kings 3.19. Then you would remove those stones when you would replant. And so that's one of the things you would do when you would conquer uh, an enemy. To cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to say goodbye, to refrain from embracing. Boys, the men used to sing, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. They're, they're going to keep coming, don't worry. There's a time to refrain from embrace, but there's also a time to embrace. There's a time to uh, hug your loved one that you haven't seen in a long time. I don't know if you've ever been in the airport when a soldier comes back from military assignment and the whole family's there ready to, to greet the soldier. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? Melts your heart. That's a time to embrace. Verse 6, he reminds us that there is nothing in this world that is ours forever. It's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Some of you hoarders need to read that verse, right? <laughs> There's a time to have a garage sale. <laughs> There's a time to give up ever fitting in those pants. Okay, it's right here, Ecclesiastes 3. It's a time to cast them away. Okay, it's okay. You, you are not your khakis. You, you, are, you are in Christ if you're a Christian. Enjoy that, okay? Verse 7, it's a time to tear and a time to sow. A, t- a time to keep and a time uh, what did I just say? A time, I've got, I got so mixed up, I should sing it. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. So this also perhaps is referring to uh, mourning, of uh, tearing garments, of, of moments in which we're to keep silent, moments when we are to speak. Some of you parents may want to use this verse for your little ones, a time to keep silent. Um, we're not for quoting verses out of context except when it's parenting our children, right? <laughs> if it works. Um, verse 8, he says there's a time to love and a time to hate. So he, he here is, is describing emotions. We're taught in the Bible to actually hate certain things. We're to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. Romans 12, verse 9, tells us just that, to abhor what is evil, to hate it. There's a time for war and a time for peace. These represent socio-political conditions. And so a summary here of this poem. We have the full range of human existence being reflected in this poem. From birth to death, we have the full range of human emotion in this life. 
Not just existence, but emotion. Weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, loving, hating. We have not just existence and emotion, but we have the whole range of human activity as well. Planting and gathering, killing, healing, breaking down, building up, and so on. And this poem is to represent the entirety of our life. Now, when we read it, we're wondering what we are to do with it. Because the author does not tell us anything to do. Right? He just moves from these desirable aspects of life to more undesirable aspects of life. And he doesn't say you should attain the desirable and avoid the undesirable. He's simply reflecting on life as it is. If someone's ever told you, perhaps we, we, you know, we say this to the youngsters, I think a good bit, that's life. Whenever they don't get what they want or they're let down, we, we want to remind them that's life. That's a very Ecclesiastes statement, isn't it? That life includes some good stuff and some hard stuff. It contains all of this. Chances are if we scroll through the news, we could probably put every story in the news under one of these categories in this poem. This is what's going on in the world. There's some stuff that people are celebrating. There's some stuff that people are mourning over. There are various seasons of life, right? It's one of the reasons I've never really liked the word balance. I prefer seasons, rhythms. Life is less about balance and more about seasons. You don't tell a student during finals week, you need to get some balance. No, it's a season of study. You better study or you will fail. Right? And if you have little kids, some of you, you of course, love your kids, but you will also perhaps be happy when they're no longer little kids. You're in a season right now, and it'll be a new season later. And you'll wish, man, I could go back just for maybe 30 seconds or so and, and do that all over again. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to build and tear down. And we need wisdom to know what season we're in. And I think part of the frustration of life comes when we try to live in the wrong season. We try to live in the former season. We can't accept the, the, the current season. And life moves, doesn't it? It goes back and forth. Some of you are in college or you're in graduate studies or seminary, and it's a parenthesis on your life. It's not your whole life. It's a strange time. It's a season. You've got to live in that time and learn how to live in that time well. Now, notice in this poem, I already mentioned, there's no mention of God. There's also no mention of of life beyond the grave. The poem ends with peace. There's a time for peace, but we are not told how to get this peace, and we certainly are not promised peace in this life. We're promised a whole lot of war, actually, in that poem. Now, the text then is, that's sort of an introduction to what the teacher wants to do. He wants us to now think about time in relationship to God, in relationship to the one who does provide life beyond the grave, the one who will bring in total peace. So let's look at some principles on time in view of God here. Now the camera shifts, and I want you to see four lessons on time in these verses. The three of them are indicated by the little phrase, I have seen, verse 10, or I perceive, verse 12, and verse 14. And then verses 16 to 22, are, they're kind of a bridge into chapter four. I'm going to include it. It's linked by that word, moreover, uh, he, he's continuing to think about uh, death and, and judgment. And so we're going to get draw four principles out of those four, uh, four sections indicated by those phrases. So first of all, because God is sovereign over time, we should trust him. 
We should trust him. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Now, if you haven't been with us in Ecclesiastes, this is one of the big issues, namely your labor, and the author is frustrated. The book began with vanity, vanity, all is vanities. In verse three of chapter one, what does man gain by all his toil? He's back at that question again. And what, what does he, what's the profit of all of this labor? As an interesting cross-reference, by the way, Isaiah 49, which is one of those servant songs about Jesus, um, he says this about himself. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And that's that Hebrew word, hevel, hevel, that we, that's translated vanity. This is Jesus thinking about his public ministry. He can identify with a feeling of frustration. His own people reject him. His disciples abandoned him at the cross. And yet he says in Isaiah 49, 4, surely my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. So we have to live with the, the belief, the confidence that God will reward our toil. Even though we feel at times like it's all hevel. It's all vanity. That's a very normal way to feel, to be frustrated with what's the point of all this work. But God recognizes it as we've been saying. Well, God is sovereign over our toil, and that's indicated in verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, you may know the bird song, turn, 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 but you may not know that Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson did a song based on this little verse as well. I'm gonna to try to hit all the musical genres in one day, okay? And what he's saying here in this text is that we don't understand it all, but we trust God. He will make it beautiful in its time. That is uh, sometimes translated fitting in its time. Life is filled with burden, but there's also beauty. That's life. Sometimes we see that beauty in this life, and ultimately we will see it fully on display at the sun's coming. He says in verse 11 as well, we, we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So a bit of frustration here with God's sovereignty. He says, um, we, we, we struggle to understand it all. We can't understand the beginning uh, to the end. It's beyond the scope of our investigation. And the more I study Ecclesiastes, the more I see this to be a big theme. That is the inscrutability of God. It's Romans chapter 11 when Paul says, oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Life under the sun involves a sense of we don't understand it all. The question is, can we trust him? Can we wait on God? Can we trust his timing? We read in the New Testament of God's perfect timing. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus announcing in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All through the gospel of John, Jesus was saying, my time has not yet come. All of those verses show us that God is in control. We don't understand everything, but we trust him. God is the king of time. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He rules our moments and our days. Nothing in life happens outside his superintendence. 
And that's why Jesus could say something like, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And he adds to it, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. How many hairs do you have? You're like, more than you, right? Yeah, yeah, I give him less work to do. Like somebody has your hairs numbered. Our father reigns over creation with a fatherly sovereignty. And that's good news for us. We may not like it because most of us would prefer to manage our own agenda, right? We would like to, uh, uh, you know, do it ourselves rather than wait on God's timing. But that's the life of faith, is to wait on God's timing. David said it in Psalm 31, I trust in you, O Lord, my times are in your hands. Our lives are very unpredictable, but on this we rest. God is trustworthy. We rest in his sovereign power and providence. I was talking to a couple here in this church about adoption recently, and many of you in this room know the emotional roller coaster of the adoption journey. And they've been given a timetable, they've been given a country, all of which is great. And I said, just remember the journey is unpredictable. So don't bother planning, just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride and trust the Lord. You may come home with four kids, who knows? Anything is possible. You may never know what the Lord will do in your life. One writer was telling Time Magazine that she drove away from a party in tears one night because she was so lonely, not recognizing, realizing that in God's sovereign providence, one of the, one of the people that she met at that party would turn out to be her husband. We don't know what's going on but we know God has the whole world in his hands and we can trust him. We can embrace the beauty of God's comprehensive sovereignty. This is very comforting. God sees the end from the beginning and we can live our lives knowing that our lives are part of a bigger picture. We can't see the whole picture. We have limited access to this picture. We want to know more of it. The text says that he's put eternity into our hearts but we trust him. We trust that there is a big picture. One writer put it well when he says, part of growing up in the world is learning to grow small. God intends us to be like children who trust their parents to know best because they can see what the children can't see and they know what the children are not able to know. And here's the thing, the relationship of trust is built on the character of the parents. If the parents are good and wise and kind, then the child who cannot see the end from the beginning has nothing to fear. We can trust the character of our God. We have nothing to fear. And what about this phrase here, he's put eternity into our hearts. To my unbelieving friends, if you're in this room and perhaps just exploring Christianity, this is an important thing that the writer says about every individual, every human being. He says something that people may not even know about themselves, that God has written eternity on people's hearts. That is, we are hardwired to long for the transcendent, to long for eternity. And that's why we will never be content with uh, our situation in life, our circumstances, our status, apart from this God who made us. This is why we long for eternity. This is part of the reason why death hurts so much. You can try to deny it. You can try to avoid it, but you cannot remove it 
He's put eternity on your heart. You're made to know this God, to enjoy him and glorify him forever. Eternity is written on our hearts and Jesus is the one you need to fill that longing. That's quite a thought, isn't it? So because God is sovereign, we can trust him. Secondly, because God is sovereign and good, we should enjoy him. Now this is, a, this is an amazing thing in the book of Ecclesiastes, how we are told to enjoy our lives. Not the life we might have, or the life we used to have, or somebody else's life, but our life. Notice how he says it in verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So be joyful, because God is sovereign and good. Go about doing good, that is, serve God and people. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, old man, what is good. But to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. That's a good life. You make that part of your life. And take pleasure in eating and drinking and, and enjoying your work. This is God's gift to man. So the God who reigns over time, the God who is in control is good. This is his gift. He's the giver of gifts. And he's given us the capacity to enjoy this life. Evidenced by the existence of taste buds. Right? I mean, God could just make us however he wanted to make us. Perhaps just drinking water or going to like a gas station and get a little fuel. But he's given us taste buds. He's given us coffee. Right? He's given us apples and strawberries and bread and fruit juice and cheese and steak and potatoes and cabbage and almonds. And we could go on. Life is not bland. It's glorious. Even as we live in this cursed world, we can throw a blanket down today and have a picnic. And do it under the smile of our sovereign God. That's our God. What do you do in this life that's filled with sorrow and joy? One of the things we're called to do is to enjoy our lives. Now, some believe God is sovereign, but they can't get a grip on the fact that he's also good. But we must never think mechanically about God's sovereignty. God is personal. God is father. He reigns with a fatherly sovereignty. These verses remind us that under the sunlight of God's sovereignty, we should rejoice in God's gifts. So eat your sandwich today with joy, right? Sip your coffee or tea with happiness. Get in that kitchen with a great recipe and just get busy. Do your job with delight. Love God and neighbor to the glory of God. Because God is sovereign and good, we should enjoy him. This, this glorifies God. God gives us gifts to enjoy, and he's pleased when we enjoy what he gives us. Number three, God is sovereign and eternal, therefore we should fear him. Verse 14 and 15, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. One more reference on God's eternality. Whatever he does endures forever. We're told throughout the Psalms, for example, that his steadfast love endures forever. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. We see here that God's work is enduring, it's complete, it's just, it's perfect. His nature is unchanging. All that he does endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His renown endures forever. 
Verse 15 shows us that we cannot fundamentally alter the nature of the world. God ends up also at the end of verse 15 balancing the scales of justice, as it were. God seeks what has been driven away. That is to say that God will have the last word on injustice. In the final judgment, he will take everything into account. So what do we do with a God who is eternal and a God who is just? Well, naturally, we should fear him. That's what he says, isn't it? He's done all of this so that we would fear him. Ecclesiastes is driving this point home again and again and again. That this God who made us is worthy of awe. He's worthy of reverence. He's worthy of our worship today. He's worthy of our obedience. He's God. Whatever God does lasts forever. God doesn't answer all of our questions. Alistair Beck says, we can't pull a string and make God dance for us. He is God and we are to revere him. This text is really emphasizing the godness of God, what it means to be God. He makes everything beautiful in its time. We cannot comprehend everything. He is God. What's our response to the reality of God, to the sovereignty of God? We enjoy his gifts. We trust him and we fear him. Fourthly, because God is sovereign and just, and because death is inevitable, we should live to glorify him. He says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that is in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So moreover here, he's linking back to the previous verses about God's justice. And now there's an emphasis on death and judgment, ethics, our mortality. The poem began by saying there is a, a time to die. That's touched on again, and we're also reminded that there is a time to be judged. Therefore, we want to live our lives to glorify God. We said this a couple of weeks ago. The reason everything matters is because everything is taken into account by God. So all of life matters, and that's why we read verses like, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Like little things like eating and drinking are important. All of life matters because there is a judgment. You take away that judgment and you have uh, just a meaningless life. Well, here, one of the laments of the writer in verse 16 is that in the human courts, there's often a lack of justice. And that even in the place where there should be righteousness in leadership, there's often wickedness. Now, you could even take this out of the, the court and take it into parents abusing kids or coaches abusing players or pastors abusing uh, uh, church members. Places where there should be righteousness, but instead there's wickedness, that brings extra pain, doesn't it, to this life? And this guy's lived a long time and he's seen this sort of thing. He's seen the abuse of power. He's, he's grieved by wickedness. So as we look around our world, as we read the news headlines, as we talk to our friends and our neighbors, we grieve when we see this sort of thing as well. So what do we do? Well, we take a cue from Ecclesiastes, the next verse. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. So he began the poem by saying, for everything there is a season and, every, and a time for every matter under heaven. And now we see all of those things, all those works and matters are taken into account by our God. God is just. God will have the last word on wickedness. We read about that in Revelation at the very end. 
yet great promise that it will all be set right eventually. And because God is judged, let's glorify him. Let's live our lives to please him. He moves from uh, death now to, or judgment rather, into death in the final verses. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. There's another great verse for your coffee mug, right? You may be offended by that. You've been called a beast. Some of you know quite well you are. So you're not offended at it at all, right? Uh, In Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist says that. I was a brute beast before God as I was pouring out my complaint, envying the arrogant. Well, he doesn't so much say in verse 18 how we're beastly, and that's not used as we say in positive sense, that dude's beastly. Um, But he does explain it in the next verse, and that is we are like the beasts in that we both die. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. So we, like the beast, will die, and then he quotes as an echo of Genesis. We've been saying you have to read the early chapters of Genesis a bit to understand Ecclesiastes as we're lamenting the toil and the thorns and the thistles and death that exists in our world because of sin. And so here is a a direct echo from it when he says, all are from the dust and to the dust all return. Psalm 145, he knows that we are but dust. Well, this gets to our mortality, right? That we're gonna return to the dust. This is often said at gravesides, isn't it? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So what do we do with the inevitability of death? We're here at the, at the same point we were last week almost, right? That death is inevitable. Verse 21, they, uh, the teacher poses a question and he doesn't answer it. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. <clears throat> now he's not denying life after death. He's not denying even resurrection. He just doesn't answer it. He's just forcing us to think about how brief life is and how we will all die, right? And to make sure that we're not presuming on more days, that uh, we, we don't take life for granted. And so he just poses this question, will our spirit go upward? Now, obviously, we know the answer to that because we have more than Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And we read uh, one book of the Bible with the whole Bible in mind, I'll say more about that in a moment. What he says in verse 22 is, so I saw that there is nothing better that that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. So he's saying, in light of the fact that you're going back to dust, get busy living. What, What are you waiting on that you should be doing? And what needs to happen before you do that thing? Get busy living. Rejoice in your work. Rejoice, again, he's trying to get us to enjoy our lives. The life we have, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Just an added note, he says, you don't know what will be after you. You can't control when you're going to die. You can't control what's going to happen uh, with your work after you die. What you can do is get busy right now. You can rejoice right now. And do your work, he says, rejoicing. Whatever work that might be. For some of you, it's changing diapers a lot. For some of you, it's spreadsheets. 
I'm not sure how you enjoy spreadsheets, but apparently we can do it. So let's do it. How should we live and die? Ecclesiastes is forcing us to ask that question, right? And we're to live and die wisely. Live with an awareness that you are going to die. And you may think that sounds really bad, but it doesn't actually, because when we consider and stop and consider that we are going to die, we can start making our lives count now. It actually helps us get busy doing the things that are important. The question is, will we be ready when that time comes? There is a time to die. And if you're not a Christian, there is no time like the present than to come to Jesus Christ and be saved, to confess him as Lord and have eternal life. No time like the present. And as a Christian, we are to live with resurrection in mind. While he gets final judgment right, he doesn't really go into the subject of the resurrection. And this, again, is why we need the whole Bible. We have a resurrected Christ who has conquered death. Therefore, we weep at death. We hate death. But we also understand that death is a doorway to the presence of God. Because Jesus Christ has conquered our greatest fear. He's conquered it. We will rise with a new body. And I'm going to be in the band. Be looking for me with a lot of bangs, right? This is going to happen. Ecclesiastes is not the last book of the Bible. We love Ecclesiastes because it's so honest to us. But we read the whole story and we see that Jesus Christ has filled our days with joy and gladness, even when we know death is inevitable because he's defeated it. He's defeated the fear of the teacher and the lament he's given an answer to in Ecclesiastes. And it's Jesus who says, everything you do in my name matters. So let's make good use of our time, amen? Let's give our lives to God-honoring activities. Let's enjoy our food with gladness and gratitude. Let's enjoy our work with gladness and gratitude. Let's fear God. Obey him in every way. Trust him, enjoy him, fear him, glorify him. That's a good life. That's a good life. And while we live in this cursed world, we rest in the Savior who has reconciled us to our Father, has given us his power to do these things. Jesus came into this cursed world and he took on all of these sufferings we've read about on himself. And Jesus himself even experienced these seasons, didn't he? There was a time for him to be born. There was a time for him to heal the sick. There was a time for him to build and tear down. There was a time for him to party with sinners like Zacchaeus and to weep at Lazarus' tomb. There was a time for Jesus to die. There is a time now for him to build his church. And one day soon, there will be a time for his return. A time for him to bring this peace, total shalom. For the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. To which we all say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before your sovereign presence, recognizing that you rule and reign over the world with fatherly sovereignty. And I pray in light of that, we could rest, we could trust you. We would receive the gifts of this life with gratitude. We would live with great care and wisdom before you. 
and we would live our whole lives, whatever you give us to do in a way that would bring you glory and honor. And we believe that one day when we see Christ Jesus, we will not regret having done these things. So help us, give us a heart of wisdom that we may glorify you all our days. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Everybody said, amen.